No one knew that at that moment, the moment when Jesus died, that he was putting to work the immutable law of the sovereign God. A spiritual axiom that humiliation brings exaltation. Jesus himself had said it in Matthew 23, 12, when he said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. First Peter records it in chapter 5, verse 6. It says, humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up. And as I read in Philippians 2 just moments ago, that because Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, God gave him a name above all names that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, and that he would be ultimately exalted as the Lord we worship. The humiliation of Jesus was an epic in its dimension and cosmic in its eternal implications. He had created everything and as the creator, now he was dying a death to pay the penalty of the sins and who he allowed himself humanity. Being God, he became a child and he grew in manhood and he allowed himself to suffer. He became sin for us. He suffered and died, separated from God and the Holy Spirit, something that none of us will ever know. And there can be no greater humiliation. This great humiliation put into motion the law of exaltation. That on Sunday morning, as recorded in Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, our key text today, Matthew 28, verses 1 through 8, and Luke 24, verses 1 through 10, these parallel passages. On Sunday morning, the earth would shake, the guards would become as dead men, and they would discover that Jesus had risen from the grave. Amen? If you're not there already, please turn quickly and join with me in Mark chapter 16. And if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word, would you do that? Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, our key passage this morning. When the Sabbath, Saturday by our day, was over... Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought the spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, Sunday, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Let's pray together. God, we open your word and we always pray that you open our minds, even our hearts, that we might understand, that we might obey. That today, as we see the resurrection of Christ in Scripture before us, we might see his resurrection power at work in our lives. Among people gathered in this room right now, And even 
in the lives of folks that we know as family and friends. God, our Father, we come before you asking this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Before we go on with our points, let's look at our scripture memory verse for the month. Our scripture memory verse from the month is a summary of Jesus' power. Let's read it together. John eleven twenty five through 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? John eleven twenty five through 26. That question hangs for each and every person in this room today. Do you believe that Jesus is the crucified and resurrected Son of God? And do you believe that if that is true, in putting your faith in Him, you too will never die an eternal death of separation from God in hell, but eternal life you'll have in heaven? Our text today brings us to consider the events of the resurrection. And as your Bible probably says in small print, and I mentioned to you already, you can see parallel passages in Mark and in Luke, and they include some different details, and we'll mention Luke in particular in a line we use in our Easter pageant in a few moments when we get there. But Mark, even though it's the most concise of the gospel, carries the weight for us here, and that's why we turn our attention to Mark today in our harmony of the gospel's approach. So if you would turn your attention back to Mark chapter 16, verse 1, and the first point on your outline is a question. And that first point on your outline is, who went to the tomb that Sunday morning? Verses 1 and 2 answers it for us. That when Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, we know some of Mary Magdalene, that she was a woman uh, that had a checkered past, but she was changed by Jesus and a devoted follower. Mary, the mother of James, it could actually be Mary of James, not the mother of, as my NIV says, so it could be Mary, the wife of James. And then Salome, these three women. And Luke, it also says that Joanna went with them, so it could be four women. The different gospel writers are telling the story differently based on the facts they heard. doesn't mean that they are wrong, just leaving out a fact like you might if you were telling a story versus someone else. But very early on the first day of the week, Sunday for us, just after sunrise. Sunrise is at a different time, but we know when sun rises because you can see it beginning. I kid you not, when we were uh, on vacation recently, there was a rooster that uh, must live nearby where we were staying the first few days. And though sunrise was supposed to be at 6.21 a.m., I know because I looked at my weather app and surely it tells me the truth, right? That at 4.14, each of the three mornings we were there, a rooster crowed. 4.14, I know, because I had my watch right at the bedside. And I'm laying there half asleep because, you know, we're out of our time zone, so my body's awake already, even though I should be asleep. And at 4.14 in the morning, and I went, it's 4.14. The sun's not supposed to rise for two hours and seven minutes. Go to bed, Mr. Rooster. The next morning, 4.14, I'm like, this is crazy. If he does this the third morning we're here, he did it. I don't know how the rooster knew it was 414 that he needed to crow. But we know when the sun is about to come up. And they were on their way to the tomb. When you think about grief, grief doesn't sleep, does it? Just like being in a different time zone when your body is out of kilter. 
when your heart is broken and when you're at a loss for someone you love. You can't sleep. You can't eat. You're not yourself. And so they were not sleeping. They may not have been eating. They may have been nervous in what was had happened to the Lord they loved and what they were going to do. But as an act of devotion, as a custom in their day, they prepared spices and they were on their way to the tomb early on a Sunday morning. Why Sunday morning? Saturday was their Sabbath. And from that sundown to the following uh, sunrise, uh, more than a full day's time, they were not allowed to do such things. So as soon as they could go, as soon as they were able, sunrise on Sunday morning, uh, still following their Jewish customs to do that, that's when they went early on Sunday morning. It wasn't that they were ashamed and trying to avoid the crowd or beat the rush or anything like that. They went early on Sunday morning because that's as soon as they could go. So off they went. And along the way, they have a revelation that we'll get to in just a moment. But you've got a statement there following your first question, and that's the significance is. Our question was, who went to the tomb? But that statement that follows it is that the significance is. So we're back on our first question in the first statement. The significance is. That because they loved Jesus, they went out. They went to demonstrate their love for Him with their heart, their mind, their soul, their strength, as the Bible says we're supposed to do that. But there's more to it than that. Who were these three that went? Women. Remember what Jewish culture said of women in those days and time. Jewish culture said a woman was less than a man. Jewish culture said that a woman could not testify in a court of law because she was not trustworthy based on her character. But remember what Jesus had done with women. Jesus had continually loved women, honored women, raised women up, elevated them above his culture to the fact where people would be freaking out by the way he treated women. Jesus loved women. And it's no mistake, I think, that the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection as recorded in Scripture were women. As their love and their devotion for their Lord is echoed by His love for them that they would be first to witness that He had been resurrected. It's amazing to me to consider Jesus' love and Jesus' love for all people and the way that he elevated the downtrodden in this culture, women. Let's move on to your next question on your outline. Your next question is, who rolled away the stone? Verse 3 and 4. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Now, were they there when the stone was rolled. Did they know the location? Obviously, they knew the location. They were going there. You know, somebody must have said, oh, you know, the one uh, tomb beside this tomb right here, you know, I'm sure there wasn't a location and they didn't have, you know, Siri to tell them where to go or anything like that, but they knew. They knew where they were going and they knew there was a stone. Uh, There's no indication that they knew that the um, uh, Sanhedrin had asked Pilate to put a Roman guard there because he was afraid that uh, people might come try to steal Jesus, or they were afraid that. That's recorded in um, Matthew. But they realize the stone's going to be there, and we're not going to be able to move it, the three of us ladies. 
Do you see what's implied here? Well, it's not really implied. It's, um, it's not explicit. What's the word for that? Implied. They didn't think that Jesus would be resurrected. They didn't think the stone would be moved. They fully expected to find a tomb with a dead Jesus in it. Who's going to roll the stone away from us, they asked, or for us. Verse 4, But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. They're walking down the way, they're watching their steps, and when they get to the place where the tomb was, they look up and the stone was rolled away. It's part of our human nature to worry about things we can't change, isn't it? We worry about things that we don't have power over, that we can't have power over, that we don't understand. Depression can't comprehend. And these things trouble us and they give us anxiety. They may even lead us to depression. They may lead us to all sorts of terrible things. I mean, you can have other physical effects such as high blood pressure and even a stroke or a heart attack by the worry that your body gets into over something that you can't change. But here's the reminder. The things you can't change, who can change them? God can. The things you can't do, who can do them? God can. And when we can't change it, that's when we have the opportunity to see God's strength at work. Think about what 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says. Write that down, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. It says, His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, that He who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly Beyond all we ask or imagine, he can do more. He has more power, more ability to do anything beyond the things we cannot even imagine. That's God's power. Mark focuses his story on the women and on Jesus. And there's no mention of the soldiers in Mark's story. No mention of what happens next, that after Jesus' body is discovered, and Matthew tells it that the Sanhedrin pays a bribe to the Roman soldiers and says to them, keep this quiet, and if Pilate asks you anything, we'll cover for you. They don't want uh, people to know that Jesus has resurrected as he prophesied. They look up, and there's no body, uh, there's no stone in the way. And they see your next little point there is God's power is what? There's no word I have to fill in there that's going to show up on the screen because it's for you to fill in, right? When we consider the stone that was rolled away, what do we see about God's power? What word would you use to describe it? You think, well, he made the world, you know, he can uh, cause miracles. So, yeah, rolling a stone away is nothing for God. Right? But can you do it? Can I do it? We can't, you know, just put the roll away like, you know, we're Darth Vader with a force or something like that. We might, if it was small enough, roll it. Or if we had enough people using the force of our physical body, but with our mind in our power, we can't do that. God can. We see God's power is great. God's power is amazing. 
When I was thinking about this, Romans 5 came to my mind. And Romans 5, if you want to turn there, you can. Chapter, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and following. And thinking about God's power and what it does for us. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which we now stand. And we rejoice in our hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that our suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. Now let me connect the two dots for you. When we think about the things we can't do, the things that bring us anxiety, the things that bring us fear, the things that trouble us, the things that keep us up at night, we need to remember that God can do and that our God is a God of hope and our God is a God of peace. And it is through his strength and by his power and because of his love and grace for us that he will do for us what we were never intended to do for ourselves. God's power is amazing, it's inconceivable, it's unbelievable, it's gracious, it's loving. Let's come back to our key text. The fifth verse asks a third question for us. And who did they find in the tomb? Who did they find in the tomb? As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Now, it says young man, it uses the word young man in Greek, not angel, but it's clear to us that it's an angel sitting there, right? Now, we need to understand something about the tomb. This could be a cave that they dug out further or something, but a typical Jewish tomb uh, of the type class that is referred to earlier in Scripture uh, of who owned this tomb and uh, that sort of thing would have a larger opening, which would, in fact, be covered by a stone generally that had been carved to fit. And then it would have a smaller entry of about two feet high by two feet wide. I mean, think about that, right? I'm not a big dude, but for me to get down through that two feet by two feet, you're crawling through an entryway into this tomb. So I'm trying to picture these three ladies with their stuff, and it's just barely dawn. Do they have candles or lights or something? They're crawling through this entryway, but then you come into the larger chamber, which would generally be six to seven foot wide and deep and tall, where bodies could be laid. So I don't know which one goes first. Scripture doesn't tell us. They come in. I'm guessing they have candles, and there might have been a bench carved or a bed carved or something, but sitting there is a young man, an angel, and he speaks to them. Who did they find in the tomb? They, they find an angelic messenger. Now, Luke records that there were two angels, uh, and it may have been that there were two there, or one outside, one inside. There may have been angels all over the place because of what God was doing and how he was protecting Jesus, but only this one or that two were seen. They entered, they saw him sitting there. And what's their reaction? Like everybody when they see an angel, <gasps> They're alarmed. They're afraid. There's something about the appearance of an angel. Every time an angel appears in the Bible that people take pause. And generally the first phrase out of an angel's mouth when uh, he's speaking to somebody is what? 
Don't be afraid. Fear not. Be not afraid, depending on what version of Scripture you memorized in, right? Because they're fearful. So your point there says, and we learn? And we learn what? We learn that God has the power to do this miraculous thing in moving the tomb, resurrecting His Son. But we also learn... I believe the fact that he had an angelic messenger waiting for them to tell them exactly what to do, to express in that instruction his love for them, his care for them. We see the sovereignty of God at work that he didn't leave any detail undone. He knew that they would be coming. He knew that they would find Jesus' mission. He knew that they would need a witness an angelic witness that could not be doubted to tell them exactly what had happened and exactly what needed to be done. We learn about God's loving power all over again by the presence of this angel in the tomb. Let's move on with your fourth point from our sixth verse. That one should be easy, right? Who had risen? Everybody? Um, Okay, let's try that again. Who had risen? Amen. The angel says to them, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? He's risen. It's recorded in Matthew. He has risen just as he said. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn in your Bible to the right all the way through Acts and Romans and get to 1 Corinthians 15. And some of you know the Scripture. We should know the Scripture. Paul writing to the church at Corinth and writing to all since then who have read it. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. He said, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. So he's going to get to the crux, the foundation of the gospel. What is it? Verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first important. In other words, it's the foundation that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Verse 4, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Jesus did just what he said. Who had risen? Jesus. Luke 24, verses 4 through 7, records that that we portray in our Easter pageant with the angel coming up right back over here. He says, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's risen, just as he said. We think about Jesus' resurrection and we wonder what became of his body. It was risen. It was resurrected. It had returned to the eternal dimension, heaven from which it came. But what is it that it teaches me? What is it that Jesus' resurrection teaches me? That's the next point on your outline. The next thing for you to write down. The next thing for you to consider. What do you learn from the resurrection? What does it show you about God's love and his power? Let's move on to our next verse and our next point. Your next verse is verse 7. And that question is, who needed to know? Who needed to know about this? The angel says, but go 
tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Why Peter? Because Peter had said, I'll never deny you. And he denied him three times. If anybody needed to know, Peter needed to know that Jesus loved him, that Jesus was going to meet him and Jesus would be there for him. Second Timothy two Verse 13 says that even when we are faithless, God is faithful. And Jesus was reminding Peter of that ahead of time. Because? Because is the next thing there. Who needed to know? Well, I just told you why, didn't I? I already answered it. I'm sorry. They needed to know where Jesus was going. And they needed to know that Jesus was going to meet them. Because he loved them. Because he wanted to reassure them. Because he wanted to give them an opportunity for obedience to go from Jerusalem to Galilee to demonstrate their faith in him by their obedience that they would do as the angel had said to the women that the women who were not qualified in the court of law to be witnesses would witness of the resurrection of Jesus to the men. They had to tell what Jesus had done, what the angel had reported Your final verse in your text today is verse 8, and that leads us to our final question. How would I react to this news? How would I react to this news? What does it say of the women in verse 8? It says, trembling and bewildered. Trembling is their physical reaction. Have you ever been in a time in your life when you were so afraid or so fearful because of what happened or because of what you were concerned would happen, you realized you were trembling and you couldn't do anything about it? And your body's just trembling and you think, whoa, I need to get a hold of myself. Try to stop. They were trembling physically. That was their physical reaction. But their emotional reaction, their spiritual reaction was one of bewilderment. Your Bible might say astonishment. That their minds were full of questions. uh, That they had so many of their expectations. And it was too much to take in at one time. So what did they do? They went out. They fled the tomb. And it says here that they said nothing to anyone presumptively between the tomb. And when they come back to the upper room to meet the disciples to report what had happened. Because they were afraid. Note that in Matthew chapter 28, verse 8 through 10, it says that they ran with joy. So even though they had fear and even though they were astonished, they were joyful because they realized that Jesus had resurrected, that this was the truth. But they hadn't put it all together yet. So they're freaking out with joy and with fear at the same time as they're running. So your last point on your outline is to me it would mean what? What would you do? How would you react to this news? Would you be one who was freaking out too? Would you want to broadcast it and tell everybody all along the way? Or would you want to be quiet and ponder it? Or would you want to get back and report it to the others who might believe it? Just as it appears these three women were doing. But more than that, the meaning of it. What would it mean to me? It means that Jesus is who he said he is. It means Jesus does what he says he will do. It means he's alive. And therefore, all the promises he made to us in Scripture are true. Think about what just happened here. I took 20-something minutes to explain it so far. But it happened like that with these ladies. From the time they realize the stone has moved away to they crawl in, have the brief conversation with the angel, crawl out and flee with joy to find the other disciples to report to them. 
When they went to the tomb, they were Saturday's children. They were full of despair, full of anxiety. They didn't know about their Lord. They didn't know about their lives. They didn't know what was going to happen with them. But when they left the tomb, though they were afraid and though they had questions, they were filled with joy because they were Sunday's children. Sunday's children realizing that the resurrection had happened and that Jesus was powerful and that God loved them. And everything he said was true. The question for you and I today is, are you still living in Saturday? Or have you given your life to Jesus to the point where you know that his love for you is real and his power for you is great and can do anything in your life he desires to do? Let's pray together. God, our Father, we come before you this morning and we are humbled by your word to consider what you have done. Your great power we see at work. And when we think about that final question, are we Sunday's children yet? Have we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, believing that He is your Son, believing that He died and rose again, just as Scripture testified, and thereby committing ourselves to be your followers? Or are we still on the way? We've got questions. We've got doubts. Maybe we've got some fears of what it would mean for us. But we need to take the step of faith. Just as Romans 10, 9 says, we need to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. That these two statements, or one statement, one uh, act of belief, will lead us to eternal salvation. God, if there's anyone here who's never trusted Christ as their Savior today, would they do that even now? And for the rest of us who are believers in Jesus, we have this, the Lord's table, in front of us today. And we consider the fact that we need to prepare our hearts to worship. There may be things we need to confess. There may be forgiveness we need to ask of you or others. Would we do that now as we sing? It's in Jesus' name we pray.